Support for this podcast is provided by the American Bar Association Tax Section. Are you looking to make valuable connections with government officials, academics, and tax professionals? ABA Tax Section membership provides you with opportunities year-round to engage and network in your area of practice. Members receive discounts on meetings, CLE, and publications, and membership also provides you with free, on-demand CLE and special members-only news and updates. Discover how membership can benefit you and join at ambar.org slash taxnotes. That's ambar.org slash taxnotes. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, tax and ESG. Environmental, social, and governance performance, also known as ESG, has become increasingly important. Investors, employees, and the public are interested in what companies' ESG activities look like and the transparency ESG reporting provides. As multinationals broaden their ESG reporting, there have also been calls for expanded transparency in tax reporting, especially as it relates to the social metric of ESG. So what does the intersection of tax and ESG look like? And what kind of ramifications would increased tax reporting transparency have? Tax Notes contributing editor Nana Amasarfo will discuss more about that in a minute. Later in the episode, we'll have Tax Notes state columnist Steve Waladicek discuss his article on recent state pass-through entity tax legislation. But first, Ama, welcome back to the podcast. Dave, thank you so much for having me back. Now, I understand you recently spoke with someone about tax reporting and ESG. Could you tell us about your guests and what you talked about? Yes. So I spoke with Elko van der Enden, who is the new CEO of the Global Reporting Initiative. And GRI is an international ESG standard setting organization. It actually produces the world's most widely used ESG reporting standards. And Elko, who took his post in January, is a very exciting choice for CEO because he's a dyed-in-the-wool tax practitioner. He previously was a tax partner at PwC, and so he helped write GRI's reporting standard for tax, which is a public country-by-country reporting standard. So we spoke a bit about his vision for GRI, and GRI approaches reporting from a stakeholder economic vision which is that multinationals should be accountable to all stakeholders, not just investors, but also their employees and the communities in which they operate. And so he discussed why public tax disclosures are so important in a stakeholder economic model and also trends he's seeing in the tax reporting space, like multinationals, greening their tax reporting. And he also talked about what is at stake for multinationals if they fail to be transparent about their tax activity and in doing so kind of lose the public narrative. All right, let's go to that interview. Elko, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Nice having me. Now, can you describe for our listeners, those who aren't familiar with the Global Reporting Initiative, a little background about its sustainability reporting framework? GRI has been founded in 1997 in the United States to provide businesses with a framework of reporting standards on social and environmental topics. Why in those days where there was, of course, the the big oil spill uh, for Alaska, there was social unrest and what financial reporting standards 
international accounting standards, financial uh, accounting standards, did not provide for was with a clear framework to report one's uh, social and environmental endeavors in such a way that it would create comparable data and comparable data not only for investors, but for wider society. That for GRI is extremely important because our purpose is basically to, uh, to provide support for impact reporting, to have an open and transparent discussion on topics that affect society as a whole. So it's climate, it's socioeconomic cohesion, and all the topics that are aligned. Uh, why do we think this is important? Because the world does not only exist for capital markets and investors themselves, but it also exists for a broader uh, humanity and humankind uh, as it is. So what GRI typically does and what GRI provide is not only what financial uh, reporting standards do, is what the effects are of environmental and social topics on the value creation of the reporting entity. No, GRI provides a framework for what the effects are of business endeavors in pursuing their strategies on the environment and on society as a whole. Now, what, what, what do we see in development when it comes to sustainability reporting as such? Because ESG and sustainability became like household definitions of lately. And there is this discussion around and about the alphabet soup that uh, uh, there are so many organizations dealing with sustainability and ESG that there is no clear picture anymore because it's muddled with these many, many acronyms. Well, in fact, let me demystify the alphabet soup when it comes to sustainability reporting. There are only two standard setters that deal with ESG as a standard. That is SESB, that now has been incorporated in the ISSB, eh, the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is a sister organization of the International Accounting Standards Board under the umbrella of the IFRS Foundation. One side, and on the other side, you have the European Financial Reporting Advisory Group, EFREC, that is responsible for setting ESG standards, sustainability standards for Europe, mandatory sustainability standards. And they have this co-creation agreement with GRI. What is the big difference between them? And that is extremely important to know, especially when it also comes to tax, which is an as a social topic in ESG. What are the major differences between these two initiatives on sustainability reporting? Well, first of all, ISSB is about financial reporting. It's about financial materiality. The information, the objective, the, the public is investors. It is intended for investors and shareholders. So it drives financial information, the enterprise value reporting of the reporting entity. What is the European initiative? What is GRI all about? It is what we call double materiality. So it's not the financial effects of the reporting entity. No, it is its effect on climate and society as such, which have a different lens, but that's logic because they have a different audience they take care of. So GRI Europe is a wider audience society 
whereas the objective of INSSB, SESB is investors. Are these two competing forces? No, they are not competing forces. They strengthen each other. They should and we should drive towards a corporate reporting environment on a global scale that is based on two pillars. And then you have a complete picture where you have the financial interests and societal interest being reported on equal footing, uh, whereby, and only then, you will be able to claim that we are moving from a shareholder capitalistic centric model to a stakeholder capitalistic centric model. So what do I mean by that? And I don't like the word capitalistic. I like the word a stakeholder centric economic model because that's where we're moving to. If you do not have the two pillar approach with financial and sustainability reporting at equal footing equally important, you cannot speak of a stakeholder-centric economic model. Everyone agrees that financial data is very important for investors, hence the introduction of mandatory uh, international accounting standards for listed companies to provide investors with comparable data. It was in those days of shareholder-centric model whereby the idea was that the sole responsibility of business is making profit on behalf of its shareholder, it is absolutely completely logic to introduce mandatory financial reporting to enable these investors to make proper validated decisions on comparable data. So if we now claim, as recently Larry Fink of BlackRock did, if we now claim that we have to move towards stakeholder-centric economic model, and not only BlackRock is claiming that, but also World Economic Forum and International Business Council, then it would be very weird not to have a reporting standard that is there to feed the needs of society, the society that the stakeholder-centric economic model tries to support. So you can't have a stakeholder model without uh, sustainability reporting on behalf of society. So if you would stick only to reporting on behalf of investors, you do only half that you have to do. So if reporting can be compared as a coin, these are the two sides, the financial reporting and the sustainability reporting. And that's exactly the second part, the sustainability reporting that GRI does. And it has done so over the past couple of years quite successfully. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. Ranked number one on the West Coast and number five nationwide, this innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-to-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's graduate tax program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu gradtax. That's law.uci.edu gradtax. Now, 
as you are very well versed with, about five years ago, the GRI board decided to create a public reporting framework for tax, which is called the GRI 207 standard. And GRI 207 is important because it is the first global reporting standard for country-by-country country tax transparency. And you co-wrote that standard when you were a partner at PwC. So I'm hoping that you can walk us through that process. I mean, first, why did the GRI board decide that tax is important for ESG reporting? And what are some of the most important elements of that standard and why were they included? First of all, the initiative to draft a standard on tax was taken by U.S. private equity firms. So it was not NGOs like Tax Justice or Fair Tax Mark or whatever, what some people think. No, it was U.S. investors that reached out to GRI to say that they wanted to see more detailed information on tax because it told them something about the risk appetite, about the quality of the profits themselves, and about the link between the sustainability policy companies have and tax, whether there was a link in, uh, uh, in let's call it, the management of, of tax behavior when it comes to social topics. So there were various reasons why, why these investors were interested in, in getting more information out there. So the board of GRI, or the, I have to say, the standards board of GRI, which is the organization within GRI that take care of the standard setting and development processes and the maintenance process of the standards. This is hard capital intensive work, by the way. They decided to, to put together a, a community of specialists uh, that became the uh, DEX technical committee. Uh, and I was kindly invited uh, to join that uh, as representative of intermediates, in this case, uh, the big audit firms. So we started to, 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 to discuss some topics that we thought would be uh, interesting for a multi-stakeholder community to take notice of. And many said that with such a sensitive topic as tax, this would not be possible. But that were people out of the tax communities that said that. In fact, one of the issues is that I think that many tax people uh, oversensitify, if that's English, tax as a topic. It's not that sensitive. And in fact, after a year and a half, we were done, which is quite fast, where all participants in the committee uh, signed off. And then the first draft was uh, sent for public consultation. So 2019, in December, uh, we came out with it, and the official launch was at the London Stock Exchange uh, in, in, in January uh, 2020. And then we were rather surprised by the voluntary uptake of many, many large multinationals to indeed embrace this standard. And why is this standard then so, so liked? Because there you have it again it provides a platform to provide comparable data. That's important to investors. That's important to society that they can compare like for like. And as GRI is the world's largest sustainability standard setter, has been endorsed by the OECD, by the United Nations, why should I not use the GRI 207 standard when I use GRI already for for all the other things that I'm reporting, and these more than 10,000 companies that use GRI. 
So the, the pickup has been quite high already, whereas the only year that we basically ask if you're a GRI reporter, please start report uh, 207 as from uh, 2021, which was last year, but already before many uh, uh, started to use them. Why also, when you look at and or have discussions with boardrooms, with audit committees, with CFOs, because it is a real standard. There is this, there has been this huge due process behind it with this multi-stakeholder environment of professionals out of various uh, constituencies that have been drafting this. Fantastic. I think that overview was so fascinating to hear, one, the background behind how this tax standard started. I didn't realize that U.S. private equity firms had a huge hand in this. But then also to hear that, you know, it moved from that sector into a more multidisciplinary conversation, I think is it's, it's very interesting and very helpful to know. Now, as you had mentioned, I mean, the GRI standards generally in 207 have witnessed a really great adoption, but I think we also have to look at the other side of the coin, which is that the idea that corporations have this public responsibility to share their tax data is not universally accepted. As you had mentioned, I mean, over the years, we've seen some major multinationals decide to publicly share their tax data, but then others have been reluctant, citing business confidentiality, as you had also mentioned. So my question for you is, what is at stake here if corporations are not transparent about their tax activity? Tax is just another topic. Let us be perfectly honest. Uh, uh, With all introductions of new uh, reporting standards, you will have people that will come with the evergreens of why not to report. There are always people that say, well, the burden is too heavy. We don't like it, blah, 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 blah. So why do I think that that is not entirely true? And why would some organizations uh, try to push back on this or don't want to report on it? And there, there, there can be various reasons. There, there, there are also, by the way, very legitimate reasons. In some countries, you're not allowed to disclose too much information on certain contracts. We know it from China, we know it from Ivory Coast, so you just cannot publish it. But you have to look at this through a broader business strategy lens. If you are a large business and you have a, an ESG policy and your ESG policy is basically, basically the engine uh, that helps you to commit to achieving the sustainable development goals that like everyone in the world signed up to and all large businesses signed up to. So then how do you do it? We look more at the environment, we look more at social topics and we look more at governance. So if you have a policy around that one, then how does tax interact with that? So if you want to be more transparent beyond what you are legally obliged to do under financial reporting, and you have endorsed or you use uh, SESB standards or, or, or GRI standards, then why wouldn't you report on tax? Because tax is an ESG metric. Not because I say so, or because the World Economic Forum said so in their 2020 report. And one of the the 22 core metrics is to report on is tax. So what would then be the reason? And what, what type of information would yield more business secret 
Then, for example, uh, the technical explanations on how you reduce your carbon emissions, which is at the core of your production processes. And also taking into account that tax data, with a bit of effort, uh, can be abstracted from uh, annual financial reports filed at Chamber of Commerce. Uh, you can do deep dive in unstructured data, et cetera, et cetera. So why, if you have this vision on sustainability and stakeholder-centric model, why would you exclude tax? You know that society is interested in tax and tax positions. I mean, we, we are ending uh, the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. That has cost states hundreds and trillions of millions of, of dollars. Uh, we have seen of course, before the large financial crisis. We see that there are some, some big things to cover. Uh, we have issues on climate. Uh, we have large demographic issues. Uh, this all needs to be taken care of by civil society and by governments, uh, for which they need, of course, tax. They want to see what contributions are by, by businesses on behalf of society, and not on a consolidated basis, but also basically... Uh, in the communities where you operate. And you do not only provide that information because tax justice or, or, or Oxfam is shouting off the rules that, that, that it's not fair or whatever. No, you want to share that information because your suppliers, your clients, uh, the communities you operate in, your employees, they are interested in that information. And then what, what is so sensitive not to provide that data? To some, there is a very deep, politically rooted aversion to provide more than beyond that what is legally necessary. Uh, and I respect that because that is, if that's your view on how things should work, then that's your view on how things should work. I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to say what morals or, or, of others should be. But if you do not have like this, this political conviction that providing data on tax is wrong by itself, then you need to have very good arguments why not to provide that information. Because on, when it comes to business secrets, the secret basically you, you deal with tax mostly is why you are pay what you pay and not so much on secret uh, formulas or competitive price mechanism. Well, I think you raised some really, really great questions as to why multinationals might oppose this and why their opposition might not make a lot of sense. Now, I do think that the current debate over public tax disclosures feeds into a much larger discussion about the kind of economic system we should have, which is a point that you raised earlier. So should we have a stakeholder-centric economic system or a shareholder-centric economic system, which right now seems to be the predominant model. So my question for you is, is tax transparency more or less important in one model versus the other? I think in, in, in both models, it is important. And let's not forget eh, that by far the majority, by far the majority of multinational uh, companies play an extremely fair tax game. Absolutely. So they have nothing to hide. There is nothing to hide. I mean, uh, uh, they are a, a, a totally fair contributor 
to, to society with jobs, investments, and their tax contributions. So in both models, it is, it is important. And I call that the neoliberal tax paradox. By not paying tax to, uh, as, as an idea to maximize your profit, over time, you will see a lot of uh, value destruction of your organization since the environment you operate in will not be able to support your business. So it's short-sighted. And that's why I like the 207 standard, because it clearly shows what stakeholder-centric economic model means and what society does for a company and what a company does for society. There are two, two sides of the same coin. Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes. And their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do. But getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations can be endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash taxnotes. That's avalara.com slash taxnotes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. Now, you had mentioned that most multinationals are operating above board, right? They're not engaging in serious tax evasion or avoidance or anything like that. So given that, I mean, why do you think that there is this persistence to hold up tax as this precious thing that cannot be revealed, that it's best for the tax community to determine what should be disclosed instead of just adhering to these common ESG standards? The reasons we hear are, are, are sometimes that simple and very operational, very down to earth. Sometimes it's not that people don't want to do it, but they say, we just do not have the capacities to start this up. We do not have our systems in place to attract that information and process it easily. It will mean an investment and I, al- I am already understaffed. So it is also sometimes an operational thing. So then when it comes to uh, year-end closing, there is a merger, there is an acquisition, there is some, some, some case or, or an investigation by the tax administrations. These, these departments are stressed, uh, are stretched and stressed. And then think, oh, my God, then I also need to have a, a, a GRI 207 report to publish. Uh, where the hell do I, I find the people to do it? That, that, that is really a reason we hear quite often, which then again, of course, that was an interest of investors, tells you something about the level and the quality of your internal controls and the efficiency, how you manage your organization. But it is a first step. The second one we, we sometimes hear is that people just have no clue that it does exist. And they they don't understand the concept of sustainability reporting, financial reporting, financial materiality, uh, double materiality. Those concepts are not very well known in in the tax community, for which you cannot blame them, because they're mostly specialists that understand and do a great job in following the law. And this is something a bit more holistic, perhaps not that concrete, there is not a lot of interaction 
between civil society and tax community. That's also due to the very technical nature of tax. So that is one. And uh, the other one is that uh, uh, some companies just don't want to disclose it because they are afraid that uh, there will be a lot of turmoil uh, in the market or by public when they provide that information. Well, again, I know, and I, I can't mention any names, that all those companies that are reporting under 207, they all had to take that first step and like, oh my God, what's going to happen? We go live. And now not one of them got negative comments on the reports themselves or were crucified in the press for publishing that information. There were companies that had discussions with some NGOs on whether it was sound or not sound business to have a hub in, in, on the Virgin Islands or that that was indeed aggressive tax planning. But at least they had, a, they had a debate on facts and not on perception. So this fear element uh, for many appeared to be completely untrue. And now they love publishing it and doing it, especially the tax departments that, that do it. They, they, they love it because they have more grip uh, and more get more understanding for what they do. But then, as always, you have also some organizations, but they are the, uh, really the minority. There are some organizations that have such aggressive tax structures that when they come into the open, uh, they will have uh, a serious debate with society and shareholders and investors like pension funds on, on what's called the, the moral acceptance of the structures in, in, in set cases. But that is also a question of time of rethinking your communication and your tech strategy to bring it more in line with your ESG strategy. Well, that's great to know. And I also appreciate you mentioning the concepts of the materiality and double materiality, because that segues into my next question for you. I mean, as you are very well aware, there's been a lot of discussion about the concept of materiality and ESG reporting, and that is how do companies define or identify material information that should be disclosed? And the GRI believes that materiality is double, that it is both financial and non-financial. So my question for you is, in the tax world, what exactly does double materiality look like? Uh, have a look at GRI 207. So it's not only uh, the financial data on a per country basis, but also your strategy, your risk management and your engagement with society. And if you look at uh, various uh, uh, pockets and uh, pieces in the UK, uh, uh, filing your tax strategy is already a legal obligation. Uh, so that part is already there. Uh, your risk management and control framework, if you fall within the scope of a cooperative compliance model, of horizontal monitoring type of things. Uh, you have to uh, have your tax control framework in place, otherwise it will not work and you will not get your ruling or your agreement with the tax administration. So that's the second pillar of 207. Uh, the third one is your stakeholder engagement or what do you disclose, what your lobby activities are, your relationships with NGOs, what your views are on, on, on tax as a part of society which most companies have already included in their corporate communication stuff. And then, then it's about the, the tax data itself. And you, these are non-financial metrics, of course, because it's, it's, it's not on the balance sheet or in your P&L. It's just a story behind how you manage it. And then, of course, you have the per, country, the, the per country data that gives insight in what you say in your strategy indeed is true. 
and it does not go overnight because companies are, are, are living bodies that constantly change and move. And that's why the story behind the data is also important. You can have a very low tax rate for a very good reason. You can have a very high tax rate for a very bad reason. So, you know, and it's just explaining society what that position is. That is the double materiality of 207. It is outside just the financial reporting whereby financial materiality is also defined as a monetizable risk of a certain magnitude that could affect your going concern. To close, the creation of the GRI 207 standard was a very high-profile task, but now you have an even more high-profile job as the new CEO of the GRI. So I'm hoping that you can share for our listeners some of your goals for advancing tax transparency in the short term and also in the long term. Strategic objective uh, in three words, alignment, alignment, alignment. We must align with the ISSB, we must align with FREC, and we must make sure that we will have a comprehensive set of corporate reporting standards that both address financial as well as sustainability topics preferably in a global framework. So everything that is possible to cooperate with ISSB and FREC is something we are pushing and pursuing. And that is what we call this two-pillar environment, this two-pillar strategy. So uh, that, that is the most important task I think I have to, to, to make that happen. On a more operational point of view as an organization, it is finding the means indeed to uh, maintain support and make better and uh, more standards on some topics that uh, society and society is, by the way, uh, politicians uh, and large businesses and other constituency that ask us to make and draft. So the part of uh, finding the means and the people to support our organization, to grow the standard setting, that is the second uh, second uh, most important topic. When it comes to tax, uh, there is indeed a, a tremendous uptake of uh, the 207 standard. And what I would like to see is that countries do not reinvent the wheel. There is a tested, proven tax transparency standard. So... I hope the EU will not start to redesign or rethink its own reporting standards under public country by country reporting, or that the OECD will add up to BEP 13, things like that. There is a standard, just use it. It is free to use, uh, uh, it is tested, it's widely respected and well used, so just do it. Well, Elko, this has been a truly enjoyable conversation. And thank you for shedding some light on this very dynamic world of ESG reporting and how it interfaces with tax. So we're really grateful for your time. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm sure we'll meet soon again. If you'd like to learn more about Van Der Enden's thoughts on ESG and tax, you can check out Ama's article, which you'll find linked to in the show notes. Now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Jason Schwartz examines the most relevant U.S. tax considerations when engaging in decentralized finance transactions. Robert Wood explains how writing off legal fees just got easier for plaintiffs. 
In Tax Note State, Bruce Ely and William Thistle provide an update on the state tax treatment of LLCs and LLPs. Don Griswold examines gender inequity in state and local tax systems and provides steps state and local governments may take to reduce their tax-based structural discrimination against women. In Tax Notes International, Noam Nokt makes the case for domestic minimum taxes on multinationals. Kartikeya Singh compares two approaches for determining which countries will have to provide U.S. in-scope multinationals with relief from double taxation under Amount A of the OECD's Pillar 1 proposal. In featured analysis, Nana Amasarfo discusses how flexibility and choice are integral to recent biometric identity verification efforts spearheaded by tax authorities. On the opinions page, Robert Goulder talks with Jenny Webster and her legal counsel, Philippa Noseda, about her lawsuit before the UK High Court challenging FATCA. Marie Sapiri argues that while the IRS has a number of options for modifying its notice, collection, and penalty procedures to assist taxpayers, Congress probably needs to step in if it wants the agency to halt all automatic notices. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here's Tax Note State Editor-in-Chief Jan Rauschsender. Thank you, Paige. I'm here with Stephen Wladicek, former indirect state and local tax policy leader for EY. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Great to be here, Sean. Before we jump into your exciting update, I've been asked by a few folks the origin behind the name of your column, The Hissing Goose. I'm aware of the meaning behind the name, but I would love for you to share with everyone the story. I just love that quote, and it comes from somebody named Jean-Baptiste Colbert. Uh, not Stephen Colbert, but Jean-Baptiste Colbert. Anyway, Jean-Baptiste Colbert is kind of famous in the sense that he was the finance minister to King Louis XIV for nearly 20 years, which is an achievement all by itself, right? Could you imagine staying as the finance minister for more than 20 years to King Louis XIV? Anyway, he was responsible for raising taxes. And the famous quote comes from that where he says, the art of taxation is picking the greatest number of feathers from the goose with the least amount of hissing. And so my point is, is if you take a look at state taxation, it truly is an art. You know, not only do you have to satisfy local concerns of the constituents and voters, as well as tax policy reasons just within your state, but you've got to worry about federal issues and you need to stay competitive. And so that's really where the origin of it comes from, is the whole idea that you've got to be able to pluck the greatest number of feathers with the least amount of hissing. I love it. Thank you. I'm sure that everyone will appreciate the update and, and a little bit of the backstory behind that. Okay, so let's move on to why we are here today. Your upcoming article titled State PTE Tax Updates, Agency Guidance and Even More Differences will appear in the February 14th issue of Tax Note State and provides an update to your original article. Would you provide a brief overview of this upcoming article and the recent legislation surrounding pass-through entity tax? Well, The first reason for doing the article was there was a tremendous amount of administrative guidance that the states issued since we did the article originally back in August. So we covered the forms and the procedures and all that stuff. And what was really fascinating to me is the wide variety of differences that the states applied with respect to administrative guidance that is critical to understanding how you're supposed to file, how you're supposed to register, and then the multi-state issues that reflect that. The next reason for doing it was there were a lot of new legislation enacted at the end of the year. So, for example, we now have a new uh, pass-through entity tax in Massachusetts, as well as Michigan, and I wanted to provide an update of that as well. 
Thirdly, there were new proposals. You know, Ohio and Pennsylvania had proposed legislation last year that still hasn't passed, but it's pending in their legislatures. But in addition, in 2022, just in the beginning of the year, and John, you know this, we had to uh, update the article several times, even in the weeks since we first came up with the idea, because more states jumped in on this. Um, we had pre-filed bills in Iowa, New Mexico, Vermont, and Virginia. And get this, I just heard uh, yesterday from one of my colleagues that West Virginia might be exploring a PTE tax as well. I haven't seen any of the guidelines for that, but the point is, is that we have interest there. So again, that was to provide taxpayers and our readers with an update of all these different changes that occurred. The overriding theme, again, still is the same thing. These state PTE tax laws are all different. And the administrative forms are all different, even in states that have nearly identical PT taxes. They all have their different rules with respect to how they uh, will apply their PT tax laws that I think taxpayers and tax advisors, tax preparers need to know about. Thank you, Steve. And you're right. We've been working closely, of course, as you continue to update this and have the most current version available when it's published, which actually leads me to the question, how challenging is it to stay on top of these state developments? John, you know, we talked about starting this article back in November. It's taken this long to do it. And there's two reasons. One is there's an awful lot of information out there and and changes that the states made as we moved along. But the flood of information that occurred over the period of time was changing weekly. And so that's why we had the delay after the January 1st deadline. I know a lot of people wanted to make payments before the beginning of the year, didn't even know how to make those payments before the beginning of the year. But again, the the issue is how could you stay current? And so that's why we're writing the article right now. But again, there's a tremendous amount of administrative guidance out there from each one of the states. Well, I'm very excited. And again, the article will come out in the February 14th issue of Tax Note State. It's been a pleasure. Before I let you go, where can our listeners find you online, Steve? Well, I'm still serving as a a retired principal and contractor to EY, so you can reach me there at stephen.wilotichek at ey.com. Thank you again. It's always wonderful to catch up. Again, very excited for this update. You can find Steve's article online at taxnotes.com, and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Analysts for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy in Tax Notes. Again, that's Tax Analysts with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at TaxNotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal accounting or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.